All right. Well, as you're finishing up greeting one another, you guys can go ahead and have a seat as we're going to get ready to get into the message and to get ready for our final week in the book of 1 Timothy. And so we're finishing up 1 Timothy this morning. Um, we've been in it for probably for some of you as long as you can remember. We've been in 1 Timothy. Um, we've taken our time walking through this book of the Bible where Paul writes a letter to Timothy. And part of my hope for this morning is that we not only would get an opportunity to walk through and learn from this final passage in the Bible um, on 1 Timothy, but that we also would get a chance to remember this series as a whole. Because every time we choose a book of the Bible, every time we choose something to walk through as a church, there's purpose behind it. And so I was thinking, I, I don't know if you have this experience. When I was a kid, I loved, my favorite game to play was Monopoly. I loved Monopoly. Um, and not only did I love it, I was great at it. And so nobody wanted to play with me because I would always win. My parents, I would beat them. I'd beat my friends. It was, it was really fun. I loved playing Monopoly. And what I gradually learned was that with Monopoly, there's a lot of rules that people play by that aren't actually in the rule book. And so I had no idea. It took me a couple years to realize that when you land on go, you don't get $200. Double it. You get, whoa, I just learned a new house rule. I was going to say four. Carolyn says five. Um, we, we always doubled it up. If you land on go, you get double. Instead of 200, you get 400. By the way, not in the rule book. You're just supposed to get 200. Now, here's another thing that I learned when I went over to my friend's house to play. They did something that was glorious that I'd never heard of. They took a 500 and put it in the middle of the board so that if you land on free parking, you get 500. When I played at home, you know what you got if you landed on free parking? You got free parking. That's all you got. And so when I learned this, we began to change the way we played Monopoly in our house. We not only put the 500 in the middle, which was great, but anytime anything came up related to taxes, that would go in the middle also. So, you know, if you're familiar with it, you know that space right after go that you land on and it takes your 200 away from you right away? That 200 goes in the middle. If you were in jail and you had to pay the $50 to get out of jail, which $50 to get out of jail, that's a pretty good deal. Um, that would go in the middle. If you picked up any card that had something to do with taxes and you had to pay it, that would go in the middle so that we could get back. It was great playing that way. But you got to be careful with Monopoly because you got to make sure anytime you're playing, you establish the way you're playing beforehand because there are the official rules and then there are the house rules. And the official way that it's being played doesn't necessarily tell you how it's going to be played in the specific house that you're in. And here we are. We're finishing up 1 Timothy. And we've called this series, In This House. And in essence, what we've done is each week we've walked through a different house rule of how we as the people of God, we as the people rescued from death by Jesus Christ, how do we live? Because it's not the same as the house rules for the world around us. And so I actually, I want, I want to put them up on the screen. Some of you have seen that gradually out in the lobby, we've put these up on chalkboards as we've walked through this series. But I, I wanted us to take a minute just to remember where we've been with these profound things that Paul is writing to Timothy about how the world, uh, I'm sorry, about how the church functions. 
And we started all the way back at the beginning with the, with the overarching house rule that we love the church. We're not consumers. We're members of the body of Christ. And within that, we cling to the truth as it's revealed in God's Word. And we revel in the grace that God has poured out in Jesus. And this isn't leisurely. We fight for faith. We pray and lift our voices to God. We build one another up instead of just being about ourselves. We embrace our roles, whether that has to do with the church or the home or society. And when it comes to leaders, we're more concerned with character and consistency than we are with giftedness or charisma. We value leadership. We take it seriously. We serve one another and we display the gospel. And then we got into chapters four through six and went on with more house rules that we enjoy the good gifts of God instead of feeling guilty about what God has given us. But in the middle of all that, we still embrace discipline instead of being led away by our whims. We talked about the fact that we all have a gift, we all have a calling, and we live to fulfill that calling before God. And part of that has to do with the fact that we take care of the needy, the fact that we honor our leaders, and the fact that whatever our station in life, we all serve one master. And then we've continued on just the last couple of weeks where Gary walked us through two weeks ago, the fact that we practice contentment. And then Kevin just walked us through last week, the passage that said that we look to Jesus. And this morning we return in the final passage in 1 Timothy, we return to the subject of money and Timothy is going to tell, Paul's going to tell Timothy that we lay up treasure. We think about riches in a different way than the world around us does. And I wanted to start with this because I know we, we, we tend to just kind of move on from things. We're like, all right, next week is Advent. We start into the Christmas season. Decorations are already up. We're, we're kind of moving on from this. And we will move forward from this but we don't want to move forward from our time in this letter without considering what is it that God wants each of us to take away from this. There may be one or two of these house rules that are especially speaking to where you are right now and to God's calling for you. So as we take in this final house rule in the letter, we want to think about it as a whole also. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the final passage now in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So if you have a Bible and you haven't already turned there, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will be up here on the screen as I read through them. I'm going to read through 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 21. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. This is God's word. Let's pray together before we move forward. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter that we've got to walk through. We pray 
that the way we live as your church, as your people who have been popped by the blood of Jesus and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we pray that we would live lives that are so countercultural that your light shines through us. We pray that in this house we reflect you. And we pray that you lead us through this final passage and speak to us in the ways that you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have a question for you as we start into this. Are you rich? Yeah. It's a mattering of different answers. When we ask the question whether or not we're rich, we usually judge that by who we're standing next to. We do a lot of the comparison game. And the fact is, unless you're really, really wealthy, most of us don't think of ourselves as being rich. But it's important that we ask this question because you may have noticed in reading through the passage, it's primarily addressed to those who are rich. So let's just try to do something right here. You know, let's try to get some global perspective to see whether or not we are rich. So first question, do you own a car? Most of us do. Many of us own more than one car. If you own a car, you are among the elite 12% of the world population with that privilege. 12%. Let's go further. Do you own a home? Not all of us. Many of us do own a home. If you own a home, it's slightly better. You are amongst the 10% of the world population with that privilege. Now, let's go even further, actually, because there's some of you that may not own a car and may not own a home, but you probably own a computer. If you own a computer, you are amongst the top 4 to 5% who are fortunate enough to own your own computer. Let's go one step further. All right, you know, 12% with car, 10% with home, 4 to 5% with computer. Let's see if we can get into the 1%. I want you to think in your head right now, how much do you think you would need to earn in a year to be amongst the top 1% of annual earners? To be amongst the top 1% of annual earners in the world, you would need to make $32,400. Many of us in this room are in the 1%. We are rich. Let me go further just to talk about some daily realities that reflect the fact that we're rich. If you have enough food in your refrigerator, not only for today, but for the rest of the week, you know what you are? You're rich. If you are able regularly to stop by Starbucks or some other coffee shop to get a drink without worrying that you are going to run out of money, you know what you are? Yeah, you're rich once again. If you are able to support a hobby that involves buying equipment, which many of us are, you know what you are? Yeah, you're rich. If you are able to take a hot shower in a leisurely pace, without worry that you're going to either run out of the hot water or that you're going to run out of money, it's because you're rich. We, we as Americans, we have very little perspective on the global scale of just how rich we are. For most of us in this room, even America's poor, let alone middle class, by world standards, we are rich. So this passage applies to everyone, but it especially applies to those of us who are rich, so we should perk up and listen. 
Now, here's the deal. Some of you, you're sort of like, all right, I know where this is going. I'm going to be made to feel guilty because I'm rich. He just tricked me. He just kind of got me to admit that I'm rich. Now here comes the guilt trip. And what I want you to know is the passages in the Bible, including this passage, don't point us towards a response of guilt if we're rich. That's not the end game here that we would end up saying, I'm rich, so I should feel bad about it. I should feel guilty about that. If you're rich, here's the deal. Your riches are going to be both an obstacle and an opportunity for you. There's going to be certain ways that it makes life more difficult, and there's going to be certain ways that it gives you opportunities that you wouldn't have if you weren't rich. So the point of this message is not to make you feel bad about being rich, but to give guidance on how do we uniquely as Christians live in that reality. And in these verses, Paul is going to talk to us about three qualities that we want to practice, especially for those of us who are rich. The first one is in verse 17. What Paul's going to tell us in verse 17 is, if you're rich, be humble. Let's look through this verse again. Command those, all right, Timothy, you've got a church full of people. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Command those who are rich. He doesn't say to Timothy, if there are rich people in your church, tell them they shouldn't be rich. It's not godly to be rich. He says, Some of the people in the church are going to be rich. Command those who are rich in this present world. Do you notice that qualifier there? Those who are rich in this present world. He's pointing towards something that he says a few words later, where he says, wealth, which is so uncertain. Many of us right now are rich in this present world. That doesn't mean that's going to last. Um, way back, a, a bunch of years ago, after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans, um, I had an opportunity to go there a couple months later. So, so this was, I, I think it was October. It was about two months after the hurricane hit and just devastated the city. So two months later, we went to gut houses. Just went into houses that had been ruined by the hurricane and took everything out of it and put it in the front yard so it could be dealt with. And there were two things that kept going through our minds as we were gutting the houses. I'll tell you what they are. The first one was um, two months ago, these people had a lot of stuff. How much do they have now? They've got nothing. They had a house full of stuff, and now they have nothing because of one hurricane. That was the first thought. The second thought was not terribly noble. The second thought that we kept having is, why do these people have all this junk? Our job would be so much easier if they hadn't accumulated all this stuff. And some of the stuff you're taking out of the house, you're like, why do they own this? Why do they have this? I'm sure that they don't use this. You don't need this much stuff. And then, of course, you know what we immediately started thinking? (laughs) Started thinking of our houses back home, and we were like, do we really need all that stuff? It's a sobering reality when you lose everything to suddenly realize how much excess stuff you have. Timothy, you got some people in the church who are rich in this present world. Remind them that wealth is uncertain. Remind them that it may not last very long. So so I, I went through this thing at the beginning, convinced probably most of us in this room, you are rich for now. Who knows what the future holds? You're rich for now, 
There may be a wave, there may be a storm, it all might be wiped out. And that's why it's so significant that he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Now, you don't have to be rich to be arrogant. Anybody can be arrogant. But if you're rich, you're going to be extra tempted to be arrogant in a different way because you're going to be tempted to look at all of your accomplishments and look at your status and conclude that all of that happened because you made better decisions than all the other people who don't have as much as you do. If they would have been just a little bit more like me, they wouldn't be so down in the dumps financially right now. Command them, Timothy, not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, nor to think that their wealth is what's going to save them. Arrogance can go along with riches, and there's many stories in the Bible that talk to us about this. Um, One that stands out is in the book of Daniel, and it has to do with King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And his story is told in several several different parts of the Bible, but in Daniel chapter 4, we get a story about Nebuchadnezzar that reminds us how easy it is for God to humble the proud. If you want to look this up later, you can look it up in Daniel chapter 4. I'll I'll just kind of sum this up for you. Daniel chapter 4, we get the story of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which was not only the greatest empire of that time, but was probably the greatest empire that the world had ever seen at that time. And there were Jews in exile in Babylon during the time that this took place. And what happens is in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is warned that if he doesn't humble himself, God will humble him. But despite the fact that he's warned, we read in Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 29, Twelve months later, as the king was walking in the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as a royal palace by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Is not this the great Babylon that I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Immediately after these words came out of his mouth, God struck him down. He basically lost his mind for a number of months, acted like a beast until he humbled himself before God and God restored his sanity. It is not hard for God to humble the proud. And for all of us, we might say, all right, well, I'm not Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not the king. I don't have an entire kingdom. I just think about his words there. Look at all that I have built. How many times do we look at our lives and look at our possessions and conclude that we have built this? How many times we look at our bank account? You know why my bank account's doing so well? You know why I'm continuing to accumulate interest? You know why the retirement account is getting better and better as I get closer and closer to it? It's because I built that. I worked hard. You know why my business that I started from scratch is doing so well now with all of these employees? It's because I built it up like that. You know why our house is so comfortable and why we have so many luxuries to enjoy? It's because I built it up like that. You know what you've built? Sandcastles that could be easily wiped out by one wave. 
And you might be like, my sandcastle is a lot more secure than her sandcastle. I got a motor on me. I got a wall. It's really secure. It still is a sandcastle. Wealth is so uncertain. So don't be arrogant and don't place your hope in it because it could easily be taken away. And if you begin to look at your wealth and say, you know why I'm going to be okay? Because I've got a retirement account. You know why I'm going to be okay? Because I've got a job. You know why I'm going to be okay? It's because I have lots of possessions. And you know what? If I can't have Netflix, I have Disney Plus. And if I don't have Disney Plus, I have Amazon Prime. And if I don't have Amazon Prime, I have Hulu. I'm going to be okay because I've got a lot of stuff. Don't place your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. To put their hope in the one God who created everything and who conquered death through His Son, Jesus Christ. Tell them to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything. You know what that means? That means everything you have is a gift from God. So if you're saying, no, I was smart. You know why you're smart? (laughs) Because of God. And probably you're not as smart as you think you are. You have the contacts that you have because God gave them to you. You have the habits that you have largely because God gave them to you. You've had the opportunities that you've had because God gave them to you. We look to God as our hope who richly provides us with everything. And just look at those last words there. For our enjoyment. In this passage, Paul is not saying, Timothy, get the rich together and make them feel awful about what they have because there's poor people out there. He says, God has provided these things for our enjoyment. God is a good father who gives good gifts. He's not trying to guilt trip you, but for heaven's sake, if you're rich, be humble. Just one more thing before moving on from this. There's a a command that's repeated multiple times in the Bible, at least three times, and it's this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So quick question. Um, Raise your hand if you have at least one problem in life right now. All right. You have at least one problem in life. So let me say this. If you have at least one problem in life, you know what you don't need? You don't need to add to that the problem of having God opposed to you. God opposes the proud, but gosh, He gives grace to the humble. He shows His kindness and grace to the humble. If you're rich, be humble. That's verse 17. But Paul says, all right, there's something else. Verse 18, he's going to tell us, don't only be humble, but if you're rich, be helpful. Three kind of rapid fire commands that, that I think are meant to build on one another. It says starting in verse 18, command them to do good. Now, I, I said earlier, if you're rich, That's an obstacle. That's kind of what verse 17 talked about. It's it's going to be an obstacle because you're going to be extra tempted to be arrogant and extra tempted to put your hope in your wealth. So there's some obstacles, but there's also some opportunities. I think that's what he's pointing to here. Command them to do good. If you have more money, there's more good that you can do with that. That's an opportunity. Command them to do good. Okay, Paul, but that's kind of vague. Command them to do good gets more specific with the second command. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. There's such a temptation to make our lives about accumulating temporary wealth. Paul says, you know what kind of wealth you should be accumulating? Riches 
in good deeds. Now, here's the deal. What Paul is not saying is, if you do enough good deeds, you get into heaven. If you're rich enough in good deeds, you get into the family of God. He's not saying that. We enter into the family of God by the pure grace of God poured out in Jesus, who died for our sins and rose from the grave. We are not brought into the family of God because we are rich in good deeds. What Paul is saying here is, make your lives more about accumulating good deeds than about accumulating more wealth. And let me just tell you a quick story about somebody who lived this out in a profound way. Uh, so a picture up on the screen, a picture is of a man named Charles Mulley. And Charles Mulley grew up in Kenya uh, in a poor family. In fact, at the age of six, he was abandoned by his parents. Lived about the next 10 years on the streets in absolute poverty got to the point that things were so horrible in his life and so hopeless in his life that he was ready to commit suicide. But he had a friend invite him to a church service where he heard the good news of Jesus and God saved him. God rescued him and gave him new life and gave him new hope. And, and a little while after that, Charles Moley actually walked from Kenya to Nairobi so that he could start a new life for himself there. And in Nairobi, it became evident that he was a genius at business. God had just created him with an instinct. He understood how to start businesses, made himself, and, and think of this phrase in light of what verse 17 said, he became a self-made millionaire. Started all kinds of businesses, was able to be successful in all of them to the point he got married and had eight children, had no problem supporting all of them with the millions that he made. And then in the late 1980s, felt that God was calling him to do something different, to accumulate a different kind of wealth. Felt that God was calling him to go back to Kenya and take care of kids like him. And so he started a fund. He went back to Kenya to care for the poorest kids on the streets in the exact place where he grew up in poverty. Since that time, in about the 30 years since they've been doing this, there have been thousands and thousands of children who not only have been taken from poverty into success in life, but they've been given the gospel of Jesus Christ through this organization. Charles Mulley could have easily said, with my life, especially now that I know how to do it, I'm going to dedicate myself to riches. And he did. He dedicated himself to being rich in good deeds. And by the way, years from now, when Charles Moley has died, um, is it going to be his businesses or is it going to be this that stays with him? His riches in good deeds have spread to many. And that, that's a lot of what I think that Paul is getting here, getting back to verse 18. All right, if we're talking about right, command them to do good, that's kind of vague. To be rich in good deeds, that's a little more specific, but good deeds, that's kind of vague. What is the center of the good deeds? The center of the good deeds is that you're doing things to benefit other people. He says at the end in the third command, and to be generous and willing to share. If your hope is not in your riches, if your hope is not in your wealth, you suddenly find yourself less attached to your stuff. And a question that all of us have to regularly ask ourselves, especially in the United States, is do we own stuff or does our stuff own us? Are we capable of making the sacrifices that would do good for other people or are we incapable because we're so devoted 
to keeping up our comfortable lives here, to be willing to share. And, and that goes for all the, for, first of all, as Americans, we, we, we've got to at least look at this and say, all right, we have so much extra. And even though we look around and see a lot of people that seem to have as much as us, there are people all over the world that are living with so much less. There's a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 where Paul is talking to, to the Corinthian church and he's encouraging them to give generously to other Christians who are in need. And what he basically says is, here's the deal. Right now, you Corinthians, you have extra and the Christians in Jerusalem don't have enough. So you have extra so that you can help them have enough. And he also says in Corinthians, think about this, probably at a time in the future, the church in Jerusalem is going to have extra. And you know what you're going to have? You're going to have not enough. And their extra is going to go over to you to support you in your difficult time. God wants us to share. And so part of that does mean that, that we try to look at this globally and say, all right, like, all right, what are the ways to share with the people that are living in so much more difficult circumstances than I am? But let me just also bring this to heart. This also means that if you're in a life group, or if you're in a group of friends and there's a member of that life group who has come upon hard times and doesn't have enough, you know why you're in their life group? You're there to make sure that they do have enough. And it could be scary because I could cut into some of the luxuries that we have. Paul says, you know what? If you have riches, it's not just to be comfortable. If you have riches, it's to be helpful. So be humble, deal with the heart, deal with your mindset, deal with all that. Make sure you're humble. Make sure you're not arrogant and you don't have your hope in riches, but also make sure you're helpful. Use the opportunities God has given you to share with those who need. Be humble if you're rich. Be helpful if you're rich. And finally, in verse 19, he's going to say, if you're rich, be heavenly minded. In this way, and what he means, in this way refers back to verse, verse 18 where he's talking about doing good and being rich in good works and sharing. In this way, if you live this way, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. In this way, they will lay up for themselves treasure as a firm foundation. And you know, the, the, some of you are at the life stage that I'm at right now. Um, where, you know, I have kids in the home, and they're growing, and I'm thinking about them and thinking, gosh, I, I want to get them off to a good start. I, I, I want to be able to give them enough and give them the opportunities that they have a firm foundation for life, that they understand how the world works, they understand how to make money. I want them to get started. And, and a lot of times when I think of the firm foundation, when I think of being on solid ground, I think of it financially. I want to make sure that they're taken care of financially. For parents who are like me at this stage, let's just pause and remember that the best thing that we can give our kids is not simply solid footing for finances in this world, but solid footing for eternity. By laying up treasure, by doing what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, don't store up treasures here on earth, store up treasures in heaven. By doing that, we're teaching our kids to lay up a firm foundation. Let me also say this. I know that there's a lot of you in here that you are younger. Uh, at least, in my opinion, you're younger. You're younger than me. Um, you, you are, you're in junior high or you're in high school, and you might be looking at this and saying, all right, well, this is, a, this is an important passage. At some point, I'll have money. At some point, I'll have money, and at that point, I'll start being generous. I would just say there's a lot of people in this room that would tell you it doesn't get easier to be generous once you have money. 
And so if I can just give some pastoral advice, I'd say, as soon as you have money, start giving. As soon as you have a little bit, start the habit of being generous with it. Jesus says the one who's faithful in a small thing will be faithful in a great thing. You're not going to be faithful as a millionaire if you're not faithful when you're working a small job and faithfully giving to the Lord. He says, in this way, they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. You may be rich in the here and now, but don't you want to be rich in the coming age? This is a weird one for us because in many passages in the Bible, it talks about treasure in heaven, talks about rewards, and we sort of want to shy away from that. We're like, oh, that sounds kind of mercenary. The idea that I'd be doing something for God, but really what I would want is the reward. Maybe I'm not supposed to do that. Let me just say, Jesus says he wants you to do that. Jesus says, do it for the reward. Do it because it will pay off. Do it because treasure in heaven is better and also more solid than anything you could store up in the here and now. Lay up treasure in heaven. And he says at the end, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life, which is really similar to the passage that Kevin walked us through last week when there was the the part that said, take hold of eternal life. He's not saying save yourself. What he's saying is live now in light of eternity. Live now as if you believe that there's rewards in heaven. With my youngest son, David, who's seven right now, um, he loves playing games. Like every day, all, he's constantly finding me, can we play a game? He loves the game of life, which is you know, sort of like Monopoly, except the cool thing about the game of life is when you're done, you have a lot of money. Monopoly, you win, and you're like, I got $2,000. Game of life, you win, you have like three or four million dollars. Um, and, and let's just say, imagine a scenario. Imagine David is, is beating me. He's winning in the game of life, which he almost always does. I don't know how it happens. Um, but he's beating me. And let's just say he's beating me bad. He's way out in front. Because it's just me and my wife and three boys, there's a lot of smack talk in our house when it comes to games. So let's say he's really, he's really going for it, though. He's talking about how much he has, talking about how much I don't have, talking about how much better he's doing, kind of throwing it in my face, mocking me. This would be unwise, right? Why would this be unwise? Because pretty soon, the game will be over. And I'm going to be the dad, and he's going to be the kid. What would be wise is if during the game, David was thinking, how do I make my life better once the game is over? The interesting thing is that Jesus told a parable that almost makes that exact same point. It's one of the weirdest parables. It's mystifying. It's in Luke chapter 16, if you want to look it up later. What happens in this parable is basically there's a money manager that's about to be fired because he hasn't been doing his job well. So the master is about to fire him, and the money manager is freaking out. He says, I'm about to be out of a job. I'm not good at manual labor. I'm not going to go dig ditches. I'm too proud to beg for money, so what am I going to do in the short time that I still have this job before I'm out of a job so that I don't end up on the streets? And then he gets a clever idea. He starts going to all of the people who owe money to his master. And he goes to one of them, and he says, how much money do you owe the master? And the guy says, I owe him 900. And he says, right now, you can be debt-free for 450. Write it down, put it in the bank, let's do it. And he does it. 
He goes to somebody else and says, how much do you owe the master? And he says, well, I owe him a thousand. He says, write it up right now for 800 and we'll call it good. And he does this with all the different people who owe his master money. I know all of us right now are like, that's messed up. That's not, that, that's not ethical. That's not okay. That's not the point. You know what happened once he ran out of a job? He had a whole bunch of friends that were happy to bring him into their homes because he used his short time that he had control over some earthly money to set himself up for what was going to happen afterwards. Jesus tells this parable, not to say that that was an ethical way to handle ourselves, but to say, here's the deal. You have the money that you have for a short time, just for a little while. Use what you have for a short time in light of what things are going to be like in eternity, in light of the fact that you have eternal life, in light of the fact that the God of the universe has sent his son to bring you into the family, has conquered death, and you have eternal life to look forward to. Right now, the older that we get, each moment that we get older, we are moving further and further away from our earthly wealth. We're getting closer and closer to the point that we die and leave it all behind. But that also means that if you have treasures in heaven, each moment of the day, you are moving closer and closer to a treasure that is much more glorious than the treasure that you're leaving behind. If you're rich, be humble. If you're rich, be helpful. And if you're rich, be heavenly minded. And as we take all this in, I want us to make sure we're grasping this idea. Paul is not simply telling Timothy, tell all the rich people to go against their best interest. He's saying, Timothy, tell all of the rich people to do what's going to be good for them in eternity. And you know what? If you're going to do that, I'm not going to shy away. That's going to require sacrifice. And the reason it's going to require sacrifice is because it's going to require trust. You've got to trust that God's going to come through with you. You've got to trust that the fact that you're giving up a lot of comfort and wealth right now isn't going to be something that you regret in the end, but something that you're glad you did at the end. And that means you've got to put a lot of trust in God. But let me just remind you, the God that you're trusting is the God who sent His one and only beloved Son to be sacrificed for your sins. The God that you're trusting is the God who would rather send his son to die than leave you out of heaven. The God that you're trusting is the God who is working all things for your good. The God who you're trusting is the God who, because he didn't withhold his own son, won't withhold any good gift from you. So let me ask you a question. That God, can you trust him? You can trust that God. You can trust him and be humble and be helpful and be heavenly minded. And in a minute, what we're going to get to do is we're going to get to celebrate communion as a reminder of the solid ground that we're on when we trust God. But before we do that, I want to read through the last couple verses of this, because the way that Paul ends this letter after this passage about the rich is to remind us of the letter as a whole, to remind us that this command to the rich isn't something that's isolated, but it's a part of this entire letter, where in verse 20 he says, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. He's talking about the gospel. He's saying, guard the gospel. Make sure people aren't led astray by things that are distracting them in the here and now. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which applies to all kinds of false teaching. 
But for today, we should especially be thinking of guard yourself, turn away from all the chatter that's trying to convince you that riches in the here and now is all that matters. Turn away from that because it's important because if you don't turn away with it from it, you might be like the people in verse 21, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Two weeks ago, Gary walked us through the passage on contentment, which said, not that money is the root of all evil, but that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and that some, because they want it, depart from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. He says, Timothy, remind all of them that the gospel is the main thing. Remind all of them why they're trusting God enough to be generous with their wealth. It's because God is trustworthy. And as we get ready for communion, and if you're helping with communion, you can head to the back now. But as we get ready for communion, here's what I want to encourage you for. This is always a time where we get to remember. Communion is about remembering the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that he gave us this symbol to remind us that his body was broken, that his blood was shed. And it's a thing that we do for those of us who are Christians, not as some kind of magical formula, but to remember the great sacrifice that was made. And what I want to invite you to do today is not only to remember that your soul has been saved because of that sacrifice, but to remember that when it comes to money, the reason you can trust God as He leads you into uncertain sacrifice is because that is the same God who sent His Son for this profound sacrifice. Let me pray for us as we prepare. Father, thank You so much that You've shown Yourself trustworthy. Thank You so much that You speak to those many of us in this room who are rich and that You don't cast us off, but You instruct us on how to live. Father, I pray that during this time of communion that you are honored. I pray that we are drawn close to you, and I pray that you build us up in trust for you as we experience these elements and experience this time of remembrance. Father, shine your light through us as a church. May we live out your house rules, not just because we're trying to keep a bunch of rules, but because we're looking to display the gospel of Jesus to the world around us. We pray this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.